The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. I'm Lara Prendergast. Every week we take a look at some of the most intriguing and important stories from the new issue of the magazine with the writers behind them. This week, will Nicola Sturgeon really risk all on calling for a second Scottish independence referendum? Plus, can we learn to be interesting again post-pandemic? And finally, are homeowners right to be outraged at the suggestion they should sell their houses to pay for healthcare in old age? So, first up this week, what happens now for the SNP after their victory in last week's elections? Will Nicola Sturgeon hedge her bets or stridently call for a new referendum? And is number 10 bothered? I'm joined now by our editor, Fraser Nelson, who says that Nicola Sturgeon is bluffing about independence in his cover story this week. We're also joined by our columnist, Douglas Murray, who writes about the relationship between Brexit and Scottish independence in his column this week. Fraser, in your cover story this week, you write that following the Scottish elections last week, the great Sturgeon bluff, as you put it, has begun. What do you mean by that? That she is presenting herself to the public and the world on a false premise. That premise, first of all, is that Scotland is itching to leave the Union. Uh, secondly, that the will of the Scottish people, as she likes to refer to it, is that they want a referendum. They were angry that there wasn't a referendum in the Queen's speech early this week. I mean, we're still a pandemic to sort out. And also a general narrative that history is sort of nudging in the way that Scotland wants out, that Brexit has changed Scots' minds. When, in fact, if you look at the actual polling evidence, you see the SNP winning fewer votes than they did 10 years ago under Alex Salmond. You see the support for independence shrinking to being about where it was during the 2014 referendum, where the union won by 10 points, 55 to 45. And that you see very few Scots, even a minority of nationalists, would actually want a referendum any time now. So Sturgeon herself would probably not even hold a referendum because she knows she would lose. And as we've seen with the Quebec experience, a second referendum loss usually means the end of the separatist movement. So it's a bluff. It's a bluff designed to scare the Tories. It's a bluff designed to keep her more fervent supporters online, telling them that referendum is just around the corner. And it's a bluff which stands in vast contrast to the expressed will of Scots at the last election. Douglas, you also write about Scotland in your column this week. What do you make of this argument that because Britain voted for Brexit, Scotland should therefore be allowed to vote on its own independence? I mean, there's several things to say about it. One is, of course, as voiced by the Nats, it's totally disingenuous. I don't think anyone could seriously believe that if Britain had voted to remain in the European Union in 2016, the Scottish nationalists would have stopped calling for a referendum. They would have called for another referendum on Scottish membership of the United Kingdom, whether we had voted remain or leave in 2016, because that's their gig. That's the sole purpose that they have. They're, they're, as I say in my column, monomaniacs. And monomaniacs stick to their claim, whatever happens around them. So the idea that something fundamentally has changed is uh, wholly bogus. And as I say, they would have argued for the same thing anyway. 
of course, as I also say in the column, there's a set of deeper sort of arguments that it seems to me need to be made because uh, some of the arguments being made around uh, Scotland remaining in the United Kingdom are made in the light of the EU referendum, as if there is a similarity between some of the Brexit arguments and the arguments for Scottish independence. And I say that that's, it's wrong on an awful lot of levels. It's wrong on the financial level, on the fiscal level. But it's also wrong at a deeper level, which is that for us in Britain, we voted to leave the European Union because we found that it wasn't a union that suited us. And it had been changing over time. Scotland voluntarily went into the Acts of Union centuries ago. It works very well for Scotland, and I think that this case should be made more often and more positively. And the United Kingdom has been one of the great political unions in history, one of the most successful, one of the most fruitful. And so I do think this case needs to be made. There's a lot more to be said, but I do think that, and as Fraser knows, the positive case for the union is one that unionists need to be making. Fraser, what do you make of this argument that Boris Johnson should call Sturgeon's Bluff, call a referendum quickly, see her lose it, and then put the matter to bed. Well, I have to say that is one that tempts me for, for two reasons. One, that I do believe another referendum will be won by the Union, and because the economic case is so much better this time around. I mean, let's remember last time, North Sea Oil was still churning away. They were expecting £8 billion a year. That oil has since choked to a halt. Certainly the money has. I mean, also at the time they were saying, look, we don't need to worry about friction with England because we're in the EU. So between EU members, there can be no friction. There can be no bureaucracy. Well, that's now changed radically now because Nicola Sturgeon says that she would like to um, rejoin the EU. And we all know that means a hard border with non-EU members. Now, the SNP was saying what one of the candidates was saying, look, look in the bright side, a border would create jobs. Now, that's one way of looking at it. But I'm not quite sure many Scots would see the logic when you think about the sheer turmoil of trying to uproot a 300-year-old union and these ties, which means that the border is no more relevant than a border between two English regions. And also, the other thing is Sturgeon says she wants her own currency. Now, of course, the SNP are unwilling to name what that currency would be or how it would operate, but this raises pretty basic questions. Who would pay my pension? And what currency would that pension mm. be paid? Now, these are all questions, I think, when you look at the practicalities, the case for independence really does fall. Nicola Sturgeon is selling it in the abstract. Do you feel Scottish? And of course, she's able to do that during an election campaign. When asked about the economics this time around, she was saying, look, I haven't updated my economic analysis since the 2014 <laughs> referendum. I haven't had to, so don't ask me any questions about that. As soon as you do move the independence question from the abstract to the practical, you will find some pretty horrific practicalities. So I do think that a campaign this time around, unions would win by an even bigger margin. But that said, I am pretty much alone amongst my unionist friends who say this. And the rest of them, I mean, by the way, I, I live and work in London, so I should check my privilege, as it were. Those who live in Scotland say, look, you can't keep playing the, the nationalists game. Their premise is mm. that the parliament is used as a tool to disrupt the union. 
you should simply say, look, the Scottish Parliament was never intended to play these constitutional games. There are very serious problems in Scotland, like the drugs deaths, for example, so get on and focus with them. In other words, they think, and there's a big argument, that the UK should no longer tolerate its dissolution than the United States would. It's against the American Constitution, for example, for Texas to leave. From the, the Spanish wouldn't um, tolerate uh, Catalonia leaving. Most countries are pretty firm about no secession policies. And there, there is a unionist who think that Boris should take that route rather than indulge the Nets in another referendum. Douglas, what do you think might happen if Sturgeon decides to do something rogue, say calling a wildcat referendum? Well, if she did, it would not have legitimacy. It, it might help burnish her among the hard core of her supporters. That, that's possible. And, of course, part of a calculation like that might be seeing a kind of overreach uh, from Westminster, seeing some kind of backlash which effectively played directly into her hands of her, her narrative of uh, uh, the English and what Westminster does in Scotland. So it could be a sort of trap to that extent where the, the danger would lie not in uh, such a vote, but in the reaction to such a vote. She might go that route. I, I agree with Fraser, though. I mean, I think that she must see from recent polls that the margins don't seem to be good enough for her to win, and that she has to play this second referendum card at a very precise moment. She has to get the timings exactly right, and that the timing isn't quite right at the moment. I just would return to this point I made at the outset, the fact that it will be the thing that the Scots Nats always call for. It would have happened if we'd voted Remain or Leave in 2016, and it will continue to be the call. In this recent elections, as, as Fraser notes in his piece, and as I note in my column, uh, Nicola Sturgeon stood on the stage and said to the, the, the Scottish voters that the vote for her was not uh, to do with a second referendum. And the moment that the results came in, she announced that once again her desire for a second referendum. It, it's not that she can't be trusted, she can be completely predicted on this point. But yes, I, I would just like to see the argument made better from across the United Kingdom that there isn't just not a good case for Scotland leaving the Union. It's an atrocious case. And not just because it's bad on its merits, as Fraser notes, but because what we have in the United Kingdom is such a success story. Fraser, I mean, do you think Boris and his government are prepared to make that case? No, I don't think they really know how. This is a big problem, actually. And I argue in my piece that the biggest threat to the Union isn't Scottish agitation, but English indifference or, or simple laziness. Mm. Um, there are far too many Tories who are way more familiar with the south of France than they are with Scotland. To understand the politics of nationalism takes a lot of time and effort. To understand the way the Scottish voting system works it seems to be beyond most of the MPs that, that I talk to. So there is a real sort of lack of interest. And this is Sturgeon's great opportunity, because if nobody really looks behind the scenes there, they will take her at her word, saying, look, this is my country now. You can't come to visit here. You cannot, for example, the UK mm -hmm. government can, does, has no remit north of the border. I think too many Tories have taken that at face value because the Tories have become quite a southern party over the years. There are a few more Scots Tories now, but n not very more. So I think that the great advantage Nicholas Sturgeon has, well, she's got several great advantages. One, let's be quite frank about the fact that the SNP is still a phenomenal success. It has won a share of a vote unseen by pretty much any other party in Europe in a multi-party system. The Tories couldn't dream of getting like 48% 
of the vote. And secondly, she's got a hugely motivated army of people who have been successfully sold an optimistic vision of an independent Scotland. No real attempt has been made to build similar enthusiasm for the Union, simply because Unionists think that it's so self-evident that you don't need to make the case. Well, I'm afraid that you do. And I think that Boris Johnson has been put on notice now that he will need to start to campaign for the Union. The Americans have got what they call the State of the Union address. It's a sort of formality now, but it's a nod to the fact that you can't take a Union for granted. Of course, America's recent history demonstrates that's a lot more than ours. But I think that the case for the Union does need to be made as part and parcel of governing the United Kingdom. But I guess this also comes back to the point about why so many Unionists are a little bit scared of the idea of a referendum. They're quite capable of thinking that Boris will blow it that they'll simply misjudge it, will try to do a Project Fear like David Cameron did, and mm. his polling advisor, Andrew Calamity Cooper, who went on to advise the Brexit, that you go up and tell Scotland they're too small, they're too poor, out of sheer indignance, mm. you might vote for the other side. That's what happened in Brexit. Yeah. You were told, no, you can't Brexit, you'll be economically ruined. Indignance drove people to the other side. So that tactic... That self-destructive tactic is quite capable of being deployed again. And I think that now is the biggest risk to the Union. Thank you, Fraser and Douglas. Now, if like us, you're looking forward to finally enjoying a summer of socialising with family and friends, you've probably had your fill of tedious chats about lockdown, homeschooling, masks and vaccines. In this week's issue, Rachel Johnson outlines her own rules for a new era of quality conversation. So it's out with polite inquiries about the children and in with ribaldry and gossip. She joins me now along with Lucy Hume from Debrats, the ultimate authority on polite socialising. Rachel, in this week's issue, you talk about how the pandemic has killed off conversation. What seem to be the main topics of conversation at the moment? Well, I think that the problem is, is that none of the topics of conversation have changed, really, apart from a little bit of have you been out? Where have you been? How many times have been have you been out? How cold was it? And, you know, I think as Victor Hugo said, there's a world of suffering, but a worse hell is the world of boredom. And I feel that we're entering that risk. We're all looking forward so much to going out. And then in my case only, I went out and I realised that it was even worse than staying at home because at least at home you can be in control of your inputs you know your television your reading your radio but when you go out you're at the mercy of the inputs of other people the outputs of other people i should say and tell you know them talking about the vaccine or asking you about their children and i realized that we needed to move on and we needed to reset the conversation and in your piece you set out certain rules about what conversation should now include what what are your new rules We've got to talk about art, sex, politics and religion and foreign affairs. And we've got to eliminate from our national discourse and private discourse all talk about our weight, what we're eating, the vaccine, the virus, lockdown. We've got to talk much more about where we're going, art galleries we want to visit, what countries we want to see, what exhibitions we want to view. We've got to fill the tank with things that are of interest, you know, the things of the mind rather than the body, essentially. We, I don't want to talk about hair or makeup or clothes or lockdown dressing or post-lockdown dressing. I think we've got to have a more of an intellectual life. We've been living in such a physical realm. 
Lisa, you work at Debrett's and, and presumably Debrett's has traditionally said to people not to talk about sex, politics and religion. But do you agree that we need to now bring that back into the national conversation? I actually do completely agree with that. I think, as you said, those were traditionally taboo topics in case, God forbid, we might disagree with one another or there might be a kind of frisson of controversy at the dinner table in polite society. But I completely agree with Rachel that we do need to move on from small talk. We've kind of circled around the same conversations for the last year and um, it's time to kind of dig deeper and have richer, more meaningful discussions and uh, kind of look outside of our insular existence and um, get onto the big subjects. I'm, I'm fully in agreement. Have you noticed sort of big changes in social etiquette during the pandemic? Well, you know, I think we've all become possibly a little bit tribal. We've existed within our um, bubbles, whether that means we've lived alone or, or with our immediate family so I for one feel pretty rusty in terms of kind of how to interact with other people and making conversation I, I definitely feel there's a bit of anxiety around relearning those skills and just the very kind of basic social skills of you know showing an interest in other people rather than being quite engrossed in our own lives and our own kind of small existences so we're all having to just get to grips with those social norms again I think. Rachel, in your piece, you say that one of the questions that really riles you is, how are the children? Why does that annoy you so much? Oh, I don't know where to begin with that. (laughs) I mean, I don't, I genuinely don't mind if my parents ask how their grandchildren are. Obviously, I'm delighted to tell them. Ditto godparents, aunts and uncles who have known these adults since birth. They are entitled to ask because I know they actually care and love them. But when strangers ask me how my children are and what they're doing, I'm filled with a sort of wild irritation about it because it exhausts me to have to trot out their CVs and tweet out their accomplishments as 20-something adults. And I know that I'm just wasting my breath because nobody's interested. Or that if they are interested, it's only on a competitive level. They're just checking to see whether your children are doing any better or being more out and about or successful than theirs. And so for both reasons, I don't want to talk about it because I don't want to have an arms race talking about my children to other people. And so they can say, oh, yes, but, you know, Honor's been in Paris for the whole of lockdown (laughs) running a Syrian refugee agency. Yes. And she started her own podcast and living with her boyfriend and you get all sorry so my something just crashed over I was getting so irritated so I just feel why do you ask what I want to answer to that question is why do you want to know what they're doing you've never met them you don't know their names ages or occupations can we just skip and talk about whether you're going to see the Rodin or the Picasso or whether you've been to the new wine bar that's opened where you have to sit outside in a hoodie. But as Mary Killen said, people only ask because they think as a mother, you're obsessed with your children and they're doing you a favour by asking you to talk about them. I don't know any mother who really wants to talk about her children because it just reasserts the myth that women are simply mothers and only interested in procreation and nurturing of our offspring. And that is going to continue even when they are adults themselves. You also, you have a very funny line in your piece where you say, I don't want to hear you ask me to find out, and we all know what that means, whether Corfu or Crete will be on the green or amberless come July. Do you find it irritating when people ask questions about other members of your family? That's terrible as well. (laughs) 
<laughs> I mean, it's just terrible. But they, I think they know they don't go there anyway because I give them such sulfurous expressions and my demeanour is, is, says, don't go there. And yes, I mean, if I sometimes get emails from people who say things like, well, this was during lockdown. I'm on my way to my second house. Can you confirm whether this is legal or not? And things like that. <laughs> As if I was going to be held, I was the ultimate arbiter of the crazy compliance and the COVID <laughs> restrictions. No, nobody, listen, I will tell you this. Nobody knew what the rules were. And I mean, nobody, unless they checked and had a sort of some expert doing due diligence on various, you know, the small print of whether six people could be indoors or outdoors in whose bubble. It's all got very confusing. Lucy, just finally, is, is there a question that irritates you when you're when you're asked it? Is there something you dread being asked? Um, well, I think when we were, you know, all based in offices, there was a tendency to ask how somebody's weekend was on a Monday. And then as you got kind of closer to the next weekend, you, you start asking what they were up to <laughs> the next weekend. So that did become a little bit repetitive. And invariably, my plans were a lot less exciting than other people's. So that could be a bit frustrating to be. And nowadays, you know, we haven't had many things to do, many options for um, activities. So again, it gets a little bit kind of repetitive, but hopefully the more things are starting to open up, the more weekend activities there will be. And that can be a slightly more varied conversation in the future. And Rachel, is there is there anything you're going to miss about lockdown life? <sighs> That's a very good question. I think having sundowners on the top of our hill in, in Somerset, just adding on from what Lucy said, though, I do remember when I was pregnant, which I did three times in five years, I wanted to get a T-shirt that said, no, I don't, I know what sex it is. Then I'd give the the month I was in and then the hospital I was having the baby so that you didn't have to answer the same three questions over and over again, 25 times a day. People who are very well-meaning and just want to know. And then can I touch the bump? Yes. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Listen, we've got to recognise people are human and the ways we've all got through the pandemic are different and now I just do feel that if we are going to move on and move into the sunlit uplands, we've got to put it aside for a while. And um, I think not have a yearning for it, which I feel the conversation is almost suggesting that we actually will miss lockdown when it's gone. We like the sameness of it. We like the repetition of it. But we've got to punch through now and just stop talking about it. Thank you, Lucy and Rachel. Now, it's been called the dementia tax and has been a thorn in the side of government for years now as ministers struggle to sell the electorate the notion of a fair and equitable threshold for qualifying for state health care in old age. Now, Matt Hancock has announced that reforms will go ahead this year, which have further angered those who fear having to sell their homes to meet care costs. In this week's edition, Leo McKinstry considers whether taxpayers should be saddled with the cost of health care for the elderly, when middle class homeowners could just pay a little more. Joining him now is Director of Policy and Communications at Policy Exchange and the man who coined the term dementia tax, Will Heaven. Leo, in The Spectator this week, you say that there's nothing unjust about selling the family house to pay for care. Why does this subject always create such outrage, though, when it's suggested? Well, people deeply resent. They have a feeling that the state is grabbing their own personal assets and that 
People feel that their families have built up property, wealth and either property or savings, and then this has been taken away just through ill luck that they have the misfortune to have Alzheimer's or dementia or frailty in old age. And, and it's just the lottery that they, some people have to fork out a fortune and some people don't pay anything if they don't need care. But I, I actually, having looked into this and having thought about it deeply, I feel that the far bigger injustice would be to ask taxpayers who might not be very well off, who might be on little more than the minimum wage, to have to pay far more in tax. I mean, the sums are probably 10, 15 billion pounds a year in order to provide free health care for other people who might be very well off. And what this is really about is asking people in work to subsidise the inheritance of people who are very affluent and have enormous property wealth often, maybe inheriting more more than a billion a million pounds sometimes, you know, and I, I just don't think that's fair. I, and I feel that there's this complaint that the government hasn't acted, it has to reform the system, it has to grasp the nettle, but the reason it can't act is because taxing ordinary people to pay for, the, to protect the inheritances, inheritances of the quite well-off would be deeply unjust and unfair and it could lead to another poll tax situation. The poll tax was all about, after a long campaign of quite affluent people complaining about the size of the rates bills they had to pay, Mrs Thatcher introduced the poll tax, which was meant to be fairer. Of course, it wasn't more fair at all. It led to tremendous revolt against the Tory party and probably cost her her place in Downing Street. So they've got to be very careful. It's easy to say, fix the system, but how do you fix the system? There's no easy solution and someone has to pay. Well, in Leo's piece, he says that it's only right that those with private wealth should be tapped up to pay for social care. Do you agree with that? Um, I think there's a kind of impeccable logic to to Leo's position and, and his article in the magazine. I think the problem comes with with the sort of politics of it, which is... It's sort of part raw politics, part raw emotion, I think. And the problem is hitting people with huge bills for social care because they have the misfortune to get a sort of long-term complex condition like dementia. Or I should add, people who are not necessarily old, but who still have uh, long-term conditions. So, you know, someone with multiple sclerosis in their 40s might might be hit with, does tend to be hit with big bills now. And so you basically, you get the sort of row that we had in 2017, which I was a, a part of while I was at The Spectator. And I described, perhaps uh, perhaps unfairly, but I did describe uh, the Tories' 2017 manifesto offer as a, as a dementia tax because it was going to unfairly hit people with those with those long-term conditions. So I personally would say... A better solution is probably the one that does involve social care that is more towards the sort of NHS model, so free at the point of use and paid for out of general taxation. Now, there, I, I will admit there is a slight unfairness in that you do end up charging working age people um, to fund the social care of people who are people who can be well off and who've done very well out of rising property prices and so on, but. I think if you were to tell most 40-year-olds, you know, you're going to pay 1p extra on, a, on income tax, for instance, over the, over the course of your career, but you're never going to have to worry about high social care costs and you're, you won't have to worry about parents and grandparents, I think they'd probably go for it. Leah, we had the Queen's speech this week and, and it was notable that social care wasn't really addressed. 
Do you think the Tories are ever going to address this issue? Well, in some ways, it's in their interest not to address the issue. I mean, there were, as you say, there were just nine words in the Queen's speech on social care. But you could say that the system, for all its faults, is actually quite fair and is working. Not At least it, it isn't disastrous. In this, then there needs to be a bit more money put in. But uh, I think if we move to Will's model of a free at the point of use NHS-style national care system, the costs would be horrendous. I mean, it's not just one p in the pound. I mean, it's a minimum of probably fifteen billion pounds a year, and that would grow once, as we've seen with the NHS. When the NHS was first created, amazingly, Labour thought the costs would go down because everyone would be healthier, and of course, costs rose exponentially within just a few years of creating the health service and the same would happen with a national care service and I, I think we have so much property wealth in this country you know and people who are over 60 have I think in my piece I mentioned that people over 65 own nearly half the all the wealth and housing in this country and I think it's only right that they should fork out a bit more and they pay for their own care when they when they can do. I mean, it's not like anyone's going to be hammered. No one's out on the streets because they have... When they say selling the family home, it doesn't mean a home that uh, middle-aged people live in. It's selling a, selling a home of someone who has to go into care and probably sadly won't uh, come out of care. So it's not as if the system is brutally harsh and is throwing people out on the streets. It actually, in its own way, works quite well. And look at the two attempts that have been tried as you say to develop alternatives there was the dementia tax as you mentioned in 2017 which nearly brought Corbyn to power and then of course there was two in 2010 Labour came up with what I thought was a very sensible suggestion of a surcharge on inheritance on the estates inheritance inherited to pay for social care and the Tories and the Liberals dubbed a death tax and that helped lose Labour the election so I think you know the any attempt at reform is always vexed with problems and turns out to be much more unpopular than the present system. Well, just finally, one of the points that Leo makes is that all of this, or a lot of this rather, boils down to what he calls the Inheritance Protection Brigade, just trying to kind of protect ourselves. Do you think that's a fair assessment? I think I think that there's some truth in that people who are well off and who who own their entire properties would do well out of a system that is that is free at the point of use and paid for out of general taxation. But I would say, you know, one in 10 people at the moment pay over £100,000 on, on social care. And that is, you know, that, that doesn't depend on how rich you are. That purely depends on what condition you end up with. So people who have dementia, multiple sclerosis, whatever it is, and need long-term care are, are massively hit. And I think basically... If you pool risk, you make everybody pay a little bit, you protect those people, the, the one in 10 that get those huge costs. And yes, probably others who don't need it benefit, but I, I still think it's the, the least worst option. Thank you, Will and Leo. And that's everything this week. As ever, you can read everything we've talked about if you pick up this week's issue, plus plenty more. Mary Wakefield has interviewed Michael Lewis. Alex Burghart reviews a new book about the Anglo-Saxons. And Daisy Dunn writes about the joys of asparagus. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. Mm-hmm.